One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This episode may contain content not suitable for some audiences, including crimes against children, mentions of suicide, descriptions of a graphic nature, and adult language at times. Listener discretion is advised. We all know the justice system exists to protect the public against criminals and their heinous crimes. But what if these laws and regulations suddenly contradict their purpose and work in favour of the offender? Anyone can assume that based on a lack of evidence or proof of their innocence, that an accused person is not guilty. But if that same person eventually confesses to the crime, you'd naturally assume that the criminal would be charged and sentenced appropriately, right? But in the case of Julie Hogg, who was murdered in 1989, her killer was able to retain his freedom despite admitting what he had done. The horrible reason behind this is a law which was introduced in the 12th century, that of double jeopardy. Julie Hogg was born on Wednesday the 22nd of February 1967. She was the first daughter to her father, Charlie Ming, an English-Chinese man, and her mother, Anne Ming, a Yorkshire woman. She was the middle child of three children, with her older brother Gary, born in 1965, and her youngest sister Angela, born in 1969. From a young age, Julie was a much calmer child than her siblings. She was introverted and kept to herself with only a handful of friends. Still, Her loyal and bubbly personality made them friends for life, 
and she stayed in touch with them well into adulthood. Anne Ming mentions in her book how they would often call Julie by the phrase, Wednesday's child is full of woe, as she was so caring, but every now and then she would become down with worry for others. But despite her timidness, Julie was not afraid to express and defend herself when she believed she was in the right. She was a very poised and fashionable young woman who would wear fashion statements that others were afraid to try. Before leaving the house, she made sure to look presentable. But inside of the house, she was the complete opposite. She was quite untidy and rarely bothered to put her things back in their place or pick her stuff up off the floor. At around the age of 16 and right after leaving school, Julie met a fellow Billingham boy named Andrew Hogg. He was a gentle and charming man and Julie fell hard for him. In 1985, when Julie was just 18, Andrew and Julie were married. Soon after the wedding, they moved into a council house at 27 Grange Avenue, a short five-minute drive from Julie's parents' house. Despite moving into their own home, Julie was fond of spending time at her parents' She would drop by to tell them what she had been up to, with her visits sometimes lasting just a few minutes before she would turn around and head back home. And despite the regular visits, Julie would also speak to her mother on the phone every day. A year after they married, Julie fell pregnant, and nine months later, she gave birth to the couple's first son, Kevin. But as they adjusted to the new little person in their lives, the cracks in their marriage began to show. They began fighting more regularly, and Julie's parents began to notice that they were drifting away from each other. Andrew had also been offered a job opportunity, proposed by his uncle, which would require a move to London. But Julie didn't want to move, as she wanted to stay close to her family. They both agreed that their relationship wasn't really worth saving, so Andrew took the job and moved out. Now a single parent, Julie took up a pizza delivery job in the evenings at a shop called Mr Macaroni. Despite the change in their daughter's situation, Anne and Charlie weren't too worried about Julie as she seemed to be taking the separation well. She was an attentive mother and they still saw her almost every day as they would take care of Kevin during her shifts. Fast forward to the autumn of 1989, when Kevin was just three years old. Julie and Anne decided to go on a mother and daughter holiday to Blackpool. Just like they had on family trips in their early years, the pair spent much of their time enjoying the rides and the thrills offered by the carnivals. But on this particular day, Julie wanted to get her fortune told, so she visited a gypsy stall. According to Anne, Julie came back and told her that the woman had predicted Kevin would become a musician. But 
she told her mum. They couldn't predict anything further because, quote, it was as if I had no future. Those words would turn out to be a foreboding warning of the grim future that lay ahead of Julie. Two months after the visit to Blackpool, Julie and Andrew agreed to make their separation legally official. Andrew had already moved to London while Julie was due to pay a visit to the court hearing in Stockton on the morning of Thursday the 16th of November 1989. Julie was more nervous than usual, so Anne agreed to be there with her for moral support. On the afternoon of November the 15th, Anne and Julie discussed the plan for the next morning so things would go smoothly. They decided that Anne would ring Julie at 7.30am to wake her up and by 8.30am she would drive down to Julie's house to pick her up. If everything went to plan, they would arrive on time at the court for the 10 o'clock hearing. Anne reassured Julie multiple times that the hearing would go well. She even suggested that Julie stay over at her parents' house for the night, but Julie declined, a decision which still haunts Anne to this very day. Quote, How many thousands of times have I wished that I had kept nagging her to come and stay with us that night? That very same evening... Anne left Julie's house with Kevin so Julie could start her pizza delivery shifts. Little did she know in that moment that this would be the last encounter she would ever have with her daughter. When Anne reached her home just a few minutes later, her phone rang. It was no surprise to see who was calling. It's just me again, Mum. You won't forget to ring me in the morning early, will you? The next morning, Anne called her daughter at half past seven on the dot. There was no answer, but like any person, Anne assumed that Julie must have been in a deep sleep after a tiresome shift. Given how close Anne and Julie lived, she decided to drive down to Julie's place and wake her up in person. She knew Julie was anxious about the hearing and didn't want to increase her daughter's stress by waking up late. When she reached Julie's place, the first thing she noticed was the curtains of the two-storey house were tightly closed, blocking out the early sun. This confirmed her assumption that Julie had fallen into a deep sleep and hadn't yet woken up. So, Anne knocked on Julie's front door and called out for her daughter. But there was still no answer. There were no mobile phones in those days, so Anne drove to a nearby phone booth and rang Julie's landline again. But once again, there was no answer. Anne was confused. Yes, her daughter could be a deep sleeper, but there was no way that she would have slept through her calls and knocks. There was simply no other option other than that Julie wasn't in her house. She considered the possibility 
that Julie had met up with someone and stayed over at their place. But Anne quickly rejected the thought, as she knew Julie would have told her if her plans had changed, and Julie knew that she needed to be up early for the court hearing. The more she thought about it, the more she could not come up with any possible reason for Julie to not be at home. Every minute that passed by felt like an hour while Anne kept trying to get Julie on the phone. At some point, while Anne was knocking loudly on the door, a neighbour who had been awoken by the noise came out and spoke to Anne. He told her that he hadn't heard Julie come home at 1.30 in the morning like she normally did after a shift at the pizza shop. She was usually dropped off by a co-worker and the neighbour would hear her enter in the flat. By then, Anne was beginning to worry. She knocked on the door of another neighbour named Kath who confirmed the same story. And with that... Anne's worry turned into panic. She rang Julie's brother Gary, who arrived at the flat minutes later. Neither Anne nor Gary had a key to the flat, so they broke a kitchen window to gain entry to the property. Gary climbed inside the window and opened the front door to allow his mother inside. They breathed a sigh of relief when they realised there was no blood or horror scene for them to discover. The reality of what they saw was actually much more disturbing. The entire house was spotless. There was nothing on the floor, and Julie's bed was made. Anybody close to Julie knew that she was not organised and rarely tidied up after herself. The bed was particularly telling. Julie would wake up and leave the bed covers unmade throughout the entire day. And when Anne had left the flat the night before, that's exactly how it had been. In those moments, Anne was sure that something terrible had happened to her daughter. Gary and Anne phoned the police to report Julie missing. They expected their concerns would be taken seriously and that the police would organise a search party to find Julie. But what happened next would mark the first battle in a 15-year-long war to gain justice for Julie. The police officer on the phone claimed that it was too soon to report a person missing and they were advised to return to their home and wait for Julie to turn up. Realising that they weren't going to get any help from the police, Anne and Gary covered the broken window and asked the neighbours to inform them if Julie returned. As the clock ticked past 10am with no calls or clues about Julie, Anne and Gary anxiously waited for any word about her whereabouts. That afternoon, Charlie joined in the hunt, and together they headed to the pizza shop where Julie worked to find out if they could shed any light on her movements the previous night. But when they turned up at the pizza shop, they were given an unexpectedly rude welcome. 
when they asked the workers if they knew anything about where Julie might be. The staff began shouting and telling the family to leave. The interaction quickly turned physical and Gary and Charlie were arrested and forced to spend a night in a jail cell. It turns out that Julie had had a physical relationship with a couple of the staff and they took the questions as an accusation that they had been involved in her disappearance. When the air was cleared, one of the men admitted that he had dropped Julie off the night before and had seen her use her key to enter her flat. With that revelation, there were new questions added to the many unanswered ones. For the next couple of days, Anne and Charlie repeatedly drove back and forth between the police station and their home. No matter the hours that had passed, they kept getting the same answer. It was either too early to declare Julie as a missing person, or she must have met someone and slept at their place after a nightclub visit, or she ran off to London to see her ex-husband. In an attempt to get the police to take their concerns seriously, Anne phoned everybody close to Julie, including Andrew and the only friend she knew who lived in London. The only time Julie had gone on a trip by herself was to visit this friend, Margaret. And even then, it was a huge challenge for her as she didn't want to travel alone. Anne knew in her heart of hearts that Julie simply wouldn't have run out on her son or missed her court appearance without telling someone about her plans. By Sunday morning, Julie had been missing for three days. That day, Anne and Charlie received some alarming news from the neighbour, Kath, whose son, Mark, had a police friend. On the same night that Julie went missing, someone had anonymously notified the police of a woman being abducted. With that, Anne and Charlie decided they were going to make one final trip to the police station. She wouldn't be leaving until her concerns were heard and her daughter was officially recorded as a missing person. When she arrived at the station, she told officers that she knew about the tip-off, but they informed her that the lead had been false. This failed to placate Anne, and she screamed in the middle of the station that she would not be dismissed. Her screams soon caught the attention of Inspector Jeff Lee. He approached Anne and Charlie and listened to what they had to say. Finally, they got the response they were looking for when he said, We are taking this seriously. We are going to send a team of forensic officers to the house tomorrow. On the 20th of November 1989, a team of five experienced forensic officers were assigned to search every corner of the three-bedroom house under the direction of Inspector Lee. 
The family heard nothing for a couple of days, until a week after Julie was last seen, they finally got a call from Inspector Lee. He wanted Anne and Angela to search through Julie's clothes to see if anything was missing. When Anne had last seen Julie on the afternoon of November the 15th, she recalled that her daughter was wearing a black skirt and a peach-coloured blouse. She reported back to the officers that those were the only clothes missing. Anne continued to rummage through Julie's belongings and found that all of her clothes, shoes, accessories and makeup were left untouched and located exactly where they should be. After five long days, the forensic investigation of the house came to a halt. With limited information on what had happened to cause Julie to disappear, Inspector Lee told the family, I can guarantee you that nothing untoward happened to her inside that house. Time would reveal that he was far from correct. But in the moment, the family had no choice but to accept what the professionals were telling them. The search had failed to turn up Julie's keys. So for that reason, the officers changed the locks and set up an alarm system that would notify the police station if anyone tried to use her keys to access the house. The very next morning, Inspector Lee informed Anne and Charlie that someone had attempted to break through a front window. Apparently, the alarm had malfunctioned and there was no evidence of who this person was or their reasons for entering the house. Charlie and Anne went to see for themselves, but there was no sign of forced entry, even through the front window. They were understandably confused as to why they would be told that someone had broken in when there was no indication that anyone had done so. They asked the police to recheck the house, and in particular the attic. But their request struck the wrong nerve of Inspector Lee and he angrily told the family to leave them to do their job. The days since Julie disappeared turned into weeks and then months. By then, Andrew had returned from London to look after three-year-old Kevin, who was understandably confused as to why his mummy wasn't around anymore. With no other options the family decided to make a public appeal for information about Julie's whereabouts. Anne took Kevin with her to Tyne T's television, hoping that if her daughter had run away like everyone kept suggesting, seeing her son's innocent face might make her return. Anne hoped against hope that she would be proven wrong and that her daughter just simply needed a break away. But deep down, she knew her daughter would never run away and leave her family behind. That was simply not the daughter that she knew Julie to be. With the certainty that she had run away, 
the police suggested three occasions that might prompt Julie to call them. Anne's birthday on December the 22nd, Christmas Day or New Year's Day 1990. But all three days came and went with no word from Julie. By the end of January, the police admitted that they had very little hope of Julie being found alive. There had been no tips or suggestions as to what had happened to her, and they relegated her case to the back of the drawer next to the other cold files. Unlike the police, Julie's family couldn't move on with no answers, however. By the start of February 1990, he along with Anne and Charlie, agreed it would be best if Andrew and Kevin moved into the house where Kevin had once lived with his mum. They saw it as an opportunity to rebuild their lives and make life as normal as possible for young Kevin. Anne paid a visit to Julie's old house to remove her daughter's possessions, while Andrew spent a few days cleaning. After one of these days, Andrew complained to Anne that there was a horrible smell coming from the bathroom. Anne shrugged it off, knowing the house had been abandoned for three months, and she advised that he pour some bleach down the drain. A couple of days later, Anne paid a visit to see how Andrew had got on with cleaning out the house. Everything was turning out well, except the smell from the bathroom, which seemed to only get worse the longer she was in the house. Anne took it upon herself to look into it, as she wanted the house to be as nice as possible for her grandson to grow up in. She noticed how, the closer she got to the bathroom, the worse the smell became. She looked closely into every corner of the room, and couldn't see anything out of place, except for some wall tiles that Andrew had stripped off which needed replacing. Anne decided to check over the bath, thinking that it might be the drain that was causing the terrible smell. As she knelt down, one of her knees leaned against an unsteady bath panel. With that, the panel sprung loose, and immediately, the horrific smell filled the room and her lungs. Anne had been a nurse for 20 years, and she identified the smell immediately. Despite knowing what it was, her brain tried to reject the idea that was forming in her mind. There was simply no way that the forensic officers who had spent five days in this house would not have found a body hidden in the bathroom. Part of her wanted to put her mind at ease to prove that what she thought could be true was not. Anne slowly pulled back the panel to find a body wrapped in a blanket. To Anne's misfortune, her motherly instincts were correct from the moment she realised her daughter was missing. She was now left to comprehend the image and the smell of Julie wrapped in a blanket 
left to rot under her own bathtub for three months. Julie's autopsy would reveal that she had been sexually assaulted and mutilated before being murdered. However, due to the advanced state of decomposition, Julie's cause of death could not be clearly identified. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. With the discovery of Julie's body, her disappearance changed from a missing person inquiry to a murder investigation. And thus began Anne and Charlie's long fight for justice. The police had ignored their cries for help countless times. They couldn't find Julie's body for three months, which left her own mother to find it for herself. Understandably, finding her own daughter's body left Anne with post-traumatic stress disorder and Charlie developed severe depression. The monster who killed Julie didn't just affect her, but the whole family as well. Anne struggled to block out the image of Julie wrapped in a blanket under her bathtub, and each night she would recall the smell This clashed with Charlie's attempts to push away any memories of Julie as his way of coping. Angela and Gary took a similar route to their father in terms of coping. Charlie and Anne still loved each other dearly, but their different coping mechanisms were pushing them apart. However, one thing they all agreed on was that the police owed it to them to find out who had done this to Julie. A breakthrough in the case came when Derek Dobson was assigned as senior investigative officer of the case. Derek had a reputation as, quote, the hunter, and the higher-ups determined that with his involvement, they would avoid further humiliation for the police department, which had let Julie and her family down so spectacularly. 
Derek lived up to his reputation, and just two weeks after finding Julie's body, they made their first and only arrest in the case, Billy Dunlop. Billy's name wasn't unfamiliar to the family. Billy used to play football with Andrew and used to hang out at Julian Andrew's place and around the neighbourhood. In fact, the last time Anne saw him was when she hysterically ran to Kath's house after finding Julie's body. Billy had been calmly sitting next to Mark, his best friend. Anne had no threatening impression of Billy, and she was oblivious as to who was really sitting in front of her. Unbeknownst to Anne, Billy had a long and violent history. He had been aggressive his whole life, starting when he was a child and his father had taught him how to defend himself. Billy and his friends were known as the Crazy Gang, and he had even given himself the title of the Hard Man. The group took pride in terrorising people, and the police were aware of their violence on the streets. The group were also well known for its proclivity for hiring strippers to satisfy their dangerous sexual desires. While Billy's history was of serious concern, what evidence did the police have to make them think that he was involved in Julie's murder? When Julie's house was searched after the police had decided that Julie had likely run away, Officers had spent some time making door-to-door inquiries. One particular inquiry stood out following the discovery of Julie's body. On the night of Julie's murder, Billy was at a strip club and was drinking heavily. He was getting violent and had knocked a man unconscious, which caused him to get kicked out of the pub. Witnesses remember how he had wobbled into a door, lacerating his eyebrow, which caused blood to spray around the room. Prior to Julie's murder, Billy was residing at his friend Don's apartment after a dispute with his then-girlfriend, Jane. Don's apartment was on the road next to 27 Grange Avenue. But when the police declared that Julie was a missing person... Billy moved back in with his girlfriend. After the pub incident, Billy had gone to the hospital to get stitched up and had supposedly left to return to Don's place. When the police first spoke to Don because of his apartment's proximity to Julie's house, they were merely inquiring about a missing person. Don had lied and said he was woken up when Billy came in from the hospital. When he looked at his video clock, it was two o'clock in the morning. But once Julie's disappearance changed to murder, Don had a different story to tell. Don admitted that Billy didn't return to his place at 2am. In fact, he had no idea when he had returned. This meant that Billy's movements were unaccounted for between 1.30 and 7.30am. The police believed he had used this time to murder Julie 
and tidy up her place before Anne showed up at Julie's doorstep just after 7.30am that morning. With this circumstantial evidence, the police gained a search warrant and looked more closely at Don's apartment. Don's apartment was a treasure trove of evidence. This time, forensic investigators looked under the floorboards and behind kitchen panels, so they didn't miss anything like they had when they looked at Julie's house. They found Julie's keys under a floorboard in the kitchen, and Billy's fingerprints were all over the key fob. They also found fibres from a shirt Billy was seen wearing on the night of the pub incident that matched those found on the blanket that Julie's body had been wrapped in. Traces of semen were also found on the blanket, which matched Billy's DNA, as well as human hairs that matched with his. The police were confident that... Not only did they have their guy, but that they had clear and compelling evidence to convict him in a court of law. But once again, how wrong would they end up being? Billy's trial began in May 1991, 18 months after Julie was murdered. There were three jurors assigned to decide the verdict. Like any trial, one's personal life becomes an open book for strangers to hear and judge. It wasn't easy for Julie's family to listen as they learned about a side of Julie's life that they were never aware of. The defence were keen to use Julie's sex life to insinuate that she had brought her murder upon herself because she was intimate with men. They told the court how, as soon as her marriage started to fail, she quickly became involved in other relationships. It was revealed that Julie had had a one-night stand with the man who would become her killer. A friend of Julie's testified that just a few days prior to her passing, Billy had met up with her, and after that, Julie had a sudden change of personality. The friend didn't think much of it, until she learnt that Julie had been murdered. Medical experts described how Julie's cause of death was difficult to assess, considering the extremely decayed state that it was found in. The only obvious damage to her body was to her vagina, which had a significant tear caused by the insertion of a foreign object. There were no signs that she was beaten, so the assumption was that her death was as a result of strangulation or asphyxiation. When Billy's own father took to the stand, he had the audacity to deny his son's crimes because he had taught Billy to kill someone by beating them up rather than choking them. As outrageous as his father was, Billy tried to prove his innocence by insisting that he was being framed and his fingerprints were planted onto the key fob. Somehow, 
despite what many believed was overwhelming and clear evidence implicating Billy, the jury in the trial could not reach a verdict. For that reason, Judge Swinton Thomas ordered a retrial. After an agonising wait, the second trial began in October 1991. The second trial felt like a déjà vu of the first trial. The prosecution offered no new questions or theories. Once again, Julie's family had to sit through the painful retelling of her murder and listen again as the defence painted her as a promiscuous woman who had brought her fate upon herself. But they attended the court dutifully every day believing that this time their daughter would be given the justice she deserved. But once again, they were devastated to hear that the jury couldn't reach a verdict. It seemed that the jury couldn't get past the fact that Julie's body was so decayed, which meant that there was no clear determination of her cause of death. During both trials... It was constantly reiterated how the police had failed to find the body on time. They never had checked the attic, despite the outburst towards the family when they asked officers to recheck it. If they had checked it at the time when the family asked, they would have found Julie's diary, cash card and watch, which would have immediately indicated that she hadn't run away. One of the forensic officers admitted on the stand that they just put their head through the loft hatch, lit up a matchstick, and used it to check around. He didn't see anything, so he didn't go any further or check more thoroughly. During the suspected break-in, the alarms hadn't malfunctioned. The police didn't get there on time to find anybody. They actually took a police dog into the house and though it didn't bark, it did become restless and dragged the officer towards the bathroom. The dog was trained to bark at living bodies, but not dead bodies. So they concocted a plan to lie to Anne and Charlie and say that the alarm had malfunctioned, to cover up yet another mistake. The second trial was crucial to convicting Billy, because at that time, the double jeopardy law existed. Under the law of double jeopardy, if Billy was acquitted, he could never be tried for this specific crime, even if he confessed in the future. With a hung jury in the second trial, Billy was acquitted and walked free. But he didn't use this as some grand second opportunity at life. Over the coming years, he continued his violent acts towards other people, in particular his romantic partners. In January 1997, he threatened his girlfriend Jane and her children's lives and received a custodial sentence of a few short months. After his release, he moved on to another woman named Donna. He was later arrested for the attempted murder of Donna and her friend Sean. Billy had beaten Sean enough to break his facial bones 
and had been stabbing Donna with an oven fork until a friend of theirs arrived. Since this happened in front of a witness, he was finally convicted of a crime and sentenced to seven years in prison. Behind bars, Billy boasted to a jail guard about killing Julie. Billy was cocky, and he was sure that he was protected under the double jeopardy law. He was right, at least initially. But he didn't count on Anne and Charlie's perseverance in their fight for justice. They took their fight to the highest courts in the country. No matter the setbacks, they kept on fighting to turn over the law of double jeopardy. After 15 long years of fighting, in April 2006, the double jeopardy law was changed. Its terms now read that if compelling evidence is presented, the acquitted person can be tried again for the same case. In May 2006, Billy Dunlop became the first acquitted person to be tried again for the same crime. This time, he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. He has never given an explanation for how or why he killed Julie. In more recent years, Billy's name has surfaced again when he became eligible for parole after serving his minimum term of 15 years. Just when Julie's family thought that they had finally brought justice to their daughter and sister, will the justice system fail them again? If you are affected by any of the content featured in today's episode, please see the show notes or visit www.truecrimebritain.com where you can find links to further support. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.